Many times when choosing a payroll service, you have to choose between a new startup with a great app or an established company whose tech may feel behind the times. With OnPay, you get the best of both worlds, a great app from an established company that's been providing payroll services for over 30 years in all 50 states. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, OnPay, later in the episode. So LegalZoom has lots of job postings for tax associates, bookkeepers, sales tax managers. They're building out a sales team, and it's all to create, basically, in a way, it's a TurboTax or QuickBooks Live type service. Wow, this is big news. I mean, since QuickBooks Live, we haven't seen anything on this scale in terms of a a tech company or an app competing directly with accounting and bookkeeping firms. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by ClockShark. Now more than ever, your clients with teams in the field are looking to reduce contact and automate their manual paperwork processes. The team at ClockShark has been busy scrambling to keep up with demand by helping accountants move clients from frustrating paper timesheets to their much-loved mobile time tracking app. Even with this increased demand, ClockShark continues to provide fast and delightful support. They're actively working with accountants and bookkeepers to implement product feedback and improvements to their already robust app that includes features like crew tracking, scheduling, overtime notifications, routes, geofencing, locations, job costing, budgeting, and reporting. To try the timesheet app that's taken over the title for best customer support, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash clockchart. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-L-O-C-K-S-H-A-R-K. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Ceteris. When Levi Morehouse founded Ceteris, his mission was to empower small businesses in the cloud. 13 years later, Ceteris has grown from a firm with zero clients to thousands. He's now offering an ebook featuring the three key lessons Ceteris learned during this journey. Lesson one, be a small business financial consultant. Lesson two, deliver industry-specific expertise. You know, go niche. Lesson three, use the right technology. Ceteris scaled their accounting business by building automation technology and is now empowering CPA firms to utilize the same automation technology in their own firms. To learn more and to download the ebook, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Ceteris. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-E-T-E-R-U-S. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. I'm David Leary. David. I'm so excited to talk to you this week. So much news. I don't know what your top story is, but mine is PPP, Paycheck Protection Program. We're never going to get away from it. This is going to be with us for the next 20 years. I I think we're going to cure COVID before we we cure and fix PPP, actually. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, because the forgiveness is going to go on forever, right? You know, the ProPublica articles will follow for years. But what is happening this week, I think, is on the top of everyone's minds, and that is that coronavirus relief package that we have been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for, and Congress just hasn't been able to come to an agreement. But it's looking like they might almost be there. And what I'm focused on in this bill, this funding bill, is the changes to the Paycheck Protection Program, part of the Emergency Coronavirus Relief Act. There is a lot here, and I was really happy that Aprio, a top accounting firm, I'm on their email list. They do some great marketing. They have a crack PPP team that they have assembled that has been pushing out content around this program. And Justin Langian, CPA, who is one of the co-leaders of the team there, 
wrote a great article called The Top 10 PPP Changes in the Pending Bipartisan Emergency COVID Relief Act of 2020. And I liked it so much, I, I called up Justin, and we had a great conversation. He gave me an overview of what is changing, what's going to be new in the next round of PPP, and talked a little bit about you know, how his firm approached building a PPP practice from scratch. It was like a 20-minute interview, so I'm dropping that as a bonus episode right after this one. So if you want to learn everything about what's going on with PPP, check out that interview with Justin Alangian from Aprio right after this one. So let's do it. We'll just drop a bonus episode with just this PPP info. So if somebody just needs specific PPP info, they can just get that episode. Or maybe maybe it's an episode you can kick off to your clients, those types of things. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So how about you, David? What's new with you this week? I do have some big news. I know I've been talking about, hey, we're going to find people in our space that have never been in our space before. You literally said that last week. I literally said that last week. Got a little uh, rumor mill through here. A little rumor was kicked around a little bit on Twitter that um, LegalZoom has been hiring accountants and bookkeepers and tax people from our listeners, accounting firms. Recruiting them away from our listeners, like stealing them. Yes, stealing them away. And so I start poking around and then, uh, you know, you start doing some Google searches. You start searching for LegalZoom accounting, LegalZoom LegalZoom bookkeeping, LegalZoom tax. But the problem is LegalZoom historically has done a lot of like business and corporation and uh, they're very good with their SEO. So Mm -hmm. you have to go three, four pages deep on Google to actually find anything. Well, then I started finding job postings. So LegalZoom has lots of job postings for tax associates bookkeepers, sales tax managers, they're building out a sales team. And it's all to create, basically, in a way, it's a TurboTax or QuickBooks Live type service. Wow, this is big news. I mean, since QuickBooks Live, we haven't seen anything on this scale in terms of a, a tech company or an app competing directly with accounting and bookkeeping firms. LegalZoom has always had a deep partnership with 1-800-ACCOUNTANT which is a decent sized firm. 1-800-ACCOUNTANT kind of always provided uh, these tax advice. I guess you could buy like tax advice in a can. You could just go, you could buy a, you pay for a question or you get a half hour Mm -hmm. consult. And basically, um, I think 1-800-ACCOUNTANT was providing that. So then, you know, you start looking at people's LinkedIn's. LinkedIn's really cool. You can do great searches. You can search the company somebody's currently at and where they were before. Right, right. I started poking around because we already knew the current CEO of LegalZoom is Dan Wernikoff. He was formerly the VP at Intuit who ran the QuickBooks division. Mm-mm. Rich Priest. Remember Rich Priest who was on the podcast? He was running QuickBooks Live. Yeah. And he left Intuit not long after we interviewed him at the last QuickBooks Connect that was in person, right? That's correct. And then we didn't know where he was going and he ended up at... LegalZoom. Uh... A former senior engineer is now the CTO at LegalZoom. The partnerships director at Intuit who got the Credit Karma deal done, she is now at LegalZoom. Oh, oh. right. This now, is seeming kind of, it's happening, right? This is. So it's funny because I didn't think, like, I just saw these people going there because Dan was there. And like, hey, they've worked with Dan before. They're taking a career change. Like, there's going to be mid-level managers at LegalZoom of some type and VPs and, and run divisions at LegalZoom. I never really, as people are taking jobs there, my brain, I never went off like, oh, maybe they're going to get into the bookkeeping game and the tax game. They're not going to become a firm. So then I also noticed because of QuickBooks Live, there's people that have Intuit, there's bookkeepers out there that have Intuit as their job because they're probably like a TurboTax Live 
bookkeeper. Mm-hmm. And they're also have LegalZoom as their job and they're both current. So it's kind of like, you know, when you get in an Uber and sometimes the Uber driver is also a Lyft <laughs> driver, right? <laughs> right, right. Like, there are multiple gigs. Like, is that what's coming through this? And then, you know, you dig around, you dig around. I found a bookkeeper who had, she basically said that she's now a LegalZoom bookkeeper. And you start reading and it actually turns out LegalZoom has purchased sometime in 2020, I don't have an exact date. They actually purchased a cloud accounting firm that does tax prep, bookkeeping, payroll. It's called Purely Solutions, purely-solutions.com. So if you open that up, Blake. Okay, I'm going there right now. Okay, there's a pop-up here. It says, we are excited to inform you that Purely Solutions has recently been acquired by LegalZoom. Rest assured, we will continue to provide our services to you and all our clients. Wow. We're excited to have joined a company that shares our values and our commitment to your success. This union will enable us to offer the same great services you are accustomed to while adding to our expertise, offerings, and client support. So I'm clicking through and now it says, I see their logo. It says Pure, Purely Solutions Powered by LegalZoom, Tax Prep, Payroll, and Books. We combine the best apps on the market with curious and passionate team members to deliver integrated business solutions for all your back office needs. If you scroll down, there's a little legal disclaimer at the bottom. Do you see that? It says, disclaimer, Purely Solutions LLC is not a CPA firm. I saw that. And that's the same thing. As soon as you go to the terms of service for LegalZoom, mm-hmm. the very first sentence is, I understand that LegalZoom is not a law firm. <laughs> right, so they're very clear. Yeah, make, yeah, they, yeah. They, they are, they're in the game, but they're trying to be very clear. Like, hey, we're not part of the game. But the founder of the firm was a, is a CPA, uh, Mark Berger, CPA, and actually got his information, believe it or not. I found him on the Firm of the Future blog, which is the Intuit blog. So, he's been writing blog posts for the Intuit blog in the past. Um, I don't know if, if going forward, that'll continue if they're going to launch a QuickBooks live competitor. Well, so what are they actually doing? Let's look at the career page. And this is what's so amazing about this. David, you're breaking this story, but it's really right out here in the open. You didn't, you didn't actually have to like go investigation. Oh, this has been right in front of our face because <laughs> like, we've even talked about, I think we talked about when Rich Priest got hired there and when Dan Wierenkopf got, we've talked about this, but right. they never but, put the dots together. But nobody has been writing about this in the press. Like if you search for LegalZoom bookkeeping, there's no news about this. Like I think this might be the very first story about LegalZoom going into this bookkeeping and tax services world. Uh, And if you go to their career page, if you go to legalzoom.com slash careers, there are jobs posted in the finance and accounting category. And there are three jobs that are in Austin and the rest of the jobs are in Glendale. And the Glendale jobs appear to all be in-house finance, working for LegalZoom's accounting and finance team in-house. And that makes sense because Glendale is where their headquarters is. Now, who are these people in Austin? The jobs I'm seeing are bookkeeper, onboarding specialist, and tax associate. And then if you click into the jobs, like let's let's read the bookkeeper, bookkeeper job description in Austin. It says, come join LegalZoom as a bookkeeper. LegalZoom is building the next frontier of services for our customers, business, tax advisory, and preparation. In this role, you'll work to serve our small business customers by providing bookkeeping services. This role is an exciting opportunity for bookkeepers with a passion for numbers and working with small business customers to empower them to succeed in a dynamic new part of the LegalZoom team. That's full-time. You know, there's bullet points about what they'll do. Uh, provide bookkeeping services, assist in onboarding clients, provide ongoing app support and assistance for clients, interact with clients face-to-face via email and over the phone. 
Yeah, they're they're looking for people with bachelor's degrees in accounting and finance with experience, relevant experience. Oh, experience using other apps such as Gusto, Receipt Bank, QuickBooks Online, and or Zero. And these are all app partners of the accounting firm, right? Like they were they, these are apps that the accounting firm used before. And they're listed. Uh, what, what was that firm's name? Pure Solutions, I think. You said? Uh, Purely Solutions. Purely Solutions. Yeah. So they're listed as partners of these apps. Um, there's some other jobs here. We've got an onboarding specialist job. There's also a tax associate job posted for the Austin office. That's going to be serving our small business customers by providing tailored advice on tax-related issues, help them navigate business tax planning, and file business taxes on their behalf. So this is a tax and accounting firm, not a CPA firm. It's specifically called out under what you'll do. They're going to be doing forms 1040, 1041, 1065, 1120, 1120S across the United States. One of their uh, tax associates, Rachel Grumbles, this is just on her LinkedIn page. In her about section, she actually just lays it out. It says, as a newly formed branch of the well-established company LegalZoom, we offer bookkeeping, back office coordination, cloud-based solution software, and tax preparation. So, so here's the other interesting piece. You've mentioned a lot of these job postings are in Austin. They're hiring some of the ex-Scale Factor bookkeepers and tax professionals that were at Scale Factor. So you can you start seeing that pattern as well. So there's not just hiring intuit employees, but they're also hiring, you know, scale factor employees. And like we said at the beginning of this whole story, they're stealing employees from our listeners' accounting firms, right? So they are obviously being very aggressive about this. They maybe haven't marketed yet, and it's it's under the radar, but this is happening. It's happening very fast. And there's a lot of hires they've had from Intuit, um, product managers, right, that have taken place in the last two, three months. So do we have any idea how big they are at this point? I mean, they haven't publicly announced it yet. Purely looked like they had in their little photo of their team, they have about 20 employees. Mm-hmm. That they're in house in their firm, and who knows what their partnership might be with one eight hundred accountant. As I was researching, so I was really thinking. If remember two weeks ago, three weeks ago, when we were talking about, hey, Square bought a tax business mm-hmm. and they got two million tax customers, but they only get paid fifty million for it. So I was, we were just talking like, but it's kind of a deal. Like, who else should have done this? Well, obviously now maybe LegalZoom should have just bought the whole tax business. Yeah. <laughs> if they were building one anyway, but maybe they've already, you know, it's that poker thing. They're just uh, too invested in this path and it's too late for them to head down that path. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, I'm, I'm eager to see what happens now. You know, it's great because like a listener tipped us onto this and any stories we've ever broken, it's because a listener tipped us on and then we'd start digging around and usually the story is just public. <laughs> you just had to like put the pieces together like this, a little, a couple of Google searches and you can find it. So, so if you have any tips for a story, always send them to us. Yes. Like always, always send them to us. Twitter's great for that. I'm at Blake T. Oliver. How about you, David? I'm at David Leary. Follow us, send us a message. Yeah. Let us know what's up and, and maybe we'll cover it on the show. Share it with the world. Speaking of sharing things with the world... The U.S. government unintentionally has been sharing a lot of secrets with a foreign adversary. Apparently, Russia, this has like been the top, I don't know, tech story of the week. Russia was able to penetrate a bunch of government agencies through a hack of a contractor who provided like monitoring software. So basically, they, they hacked into this company called SolarWinds, and then they planted malware into this agent that SolarWinds then distributed across the government. And SolarWinds, this is not like, oh, I got a $59 antivirus on my computer. Like SolarWinds specializes in super highly important uh, systems, government protect, agencies yeah. and systems, right? Like 
the really important stuff that we really, 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 really need to cure, like nuclear weapons and things, right? Yeah, although it wasn't the classified systems, apparently, but still, like lots of computers. I mean, uh, apparently, this this is so widespread that they're talking about having to basically just trash the networks and start new ones because they don't know where the malware might have gotten to. And the penetration was so deep. Now, how does that relate to us and accounting and tax? Well, senators are now asking whether IRS taxpayer data was hit in the SolarWinds attack. There's a lot that we don't know because this was such a wide-ranging attack and so many agencies um, were hit by it. So, Senate Finance Chairman Chuck Grassley and Ron Wyden, the committee's top Democrat, they have sent a letter to the IRS Commissioner Chuck Reddig requested information about the integrity of taxpayer data and how officials are mitigating any potential damage from the hack link to Russia. We don't know anything more than that, but they are looking into it and will, of course, you know, keep you updated on if there are any developments in that regard. Now, I've got some more IRS news. The IRS is extending acceptance of digital signatures and email documents. Good news. Been a nice convenience that we have been allowed since coronavirus made it really difficult to get in-person signatures. So this was allowed to, until the end of this year, and that date has been extended through the middle of next year. So according to a memo from the IRS, through June 30th, IRS employees can accept images of signatures, either scanned or photographed, as well as digital signatures on documents related to the determination or collection of tax liability. And it kind of makes me wonder, why don't they just make this permanent? Why are we still using wet signatures for stuff when stuff ends up getting scanned anyway? And I mean, you could fake a wet signature just as easily as you could a scanned signature these days. I, you know, I, I just, I just don't get it. Well, most of the time now these days too, right? Like you, you sign an ink and then they want you to scan it. Right. Right. Or, and, and, and a lot of times what I do is I, I just, I have a, my laptop as a touchscreen and I just bring open the dock and I do my signature with my, I get my pen out, I do my little signature on that and then send it off. I know, but the IRS isn't even doing that, David. You can't even do that. Like in the past, you had to sign it and physically mail it to them. This is just a temporary thing that you can take a picture of it and send it to them. Like they just temporary, like this is not an official long-term policy. It's no, just, it's just for COVID response. Just because of COVID, yeah. It's like, well, you know, I mean, the rest of the world has kind of moved on from that. You, know, you can even do almost all of like buying a home digitally now. There's like only a few things that have to be wet signed. So it just seems insane to me. But, you know, maybe that'll happen as we get to June. People will think, hmm, maybe we don't need to do this ridiculous thing anymore. <laughs> I've got one I've got one more tax related story tax related, okay. as well. This this one's actually a really fun one. Did you know that Bob Dylan sold his song catalog? I think I saw something about that. Yeah, for like some insane amount of money. Somewhere between 300 and 400 million dollars. It is a sale to the Universal Music Publishing Group by Bob Dylan. His whole songwriting catalog. Now, the Wall Street Journal did an interesting take on this. They wrote a story about how that sale may have been at least partially motivated by a tax benefit for songwriters that was deliberately written into the tax code. The first line in the article is probably the best. The line is, the answer, my friend, is blown in the tax code. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the, the deal with this is that for musicians, they have an advantage that they can sell self-created works and owe capital gains tax rates of 20% on the sale. So normally, a guy like Bob Dylan would owe ordinary tax rates of as much as 37% each year on the royalty income that he gets from streaming, licensing, and other uses of his works. But by selling 
his catalog all at once to Universal, he can only pay 20% capital gains on the sale. And he doesn't even have to pay the additional 3.8% tax that applies to most capital gains and other passive income of higher earners because he was an active participant in the business of writing those songs over many years. So instead of him getting a check trickling in every week, checks from Spotify, you know, for 0.0002 cents every time he gets a, a play on Spotify or if his son's using the commercial or it's on the radio, instead of the, that money slowly trickling in and, and again getting taxed at 30%, he's basically choosing, I'll take $500 million up front now and just pay 20% taxes. And that's that's a tax loophole that's available to him. Correct. And there's even ways, according to the experts cited in this article, where he can set up some sort of holding company in a different state, like not California, and he could avoid paying even state taxes on that. So it's like super advantageous to him, especially like living in California, a high tax state to convert his ordinary gains into capital gains instead this way. Now, there's some downsides in terms of estate planning where, you know, like he can't just pass on the song catalog to his heirs and avoid a stepped up basis. But it's like so much money that I think his heirs are going to be fine and he gets to have it all at once right now. So, you know, it's a trade-off, right? Uh, And also, you don't know, like maybe taxes will go up in the future, which is, you know, looking potentially more likely now that the Democrats are in control. So, sensible to do it this year. That'd be ironic if, if, if this is all like if Bob Dylan was motivated by a tax move to sell his catalog. Right. I know. Like, it's not exactly on brand for him, right? Now, there's even a benefit to the corporation that is purchasing uh, his catalog because they can amortize that purchase price over 10 to 15 years. So, the income stream that they now have of his catalog is offset by the amortization of that purchase. So they're offsetting their income and their expense in a way that Bob Dylan could never do. So when you like model out the future cash flows, the catalog is worth more to Universal now than it is to Bob Dylan now. So that's why they're willing to pay so much because of all these, you know, tax things. And and then of course a corporation can uh, have a holding company in Delaware own the catalog so that they don't have to have as much in state taxes and stuff like that. So yeah, just a really interesting uh, tax angle to this whole story about Bob Dylan and, and his catalog. That's, no, that's cool. <laughs> I don't think that cool, but um, I do have another ransomware attack you can bring up. Yeah, let's talk about fraud, ransomware, all that good stuff. Uh, so uh, another United States ransomware attack is at major provider for accounting and healthcare organizations. So there's a cloud hosting IT service provider called NetGain. Are you familiar with them? N-E-T-G-A-I-N. Never heard of them. I've never heard of them as well, but they bill themselves as, quote unquote, the industry standard for secure and scalable IT as a service for accounting and healthcare. And they uh, suffered a ransomware attack. It looks like it went back to like November 24th, and then it, they had some uh, system outages. And then on December 4th again, then December 5th again, then December 8th again, they've started to send out um, some notes that some sil- servers were still down. Apparently, they, uh, they're really big in the optometry and vision therapy clients. There's a, an app called Crystal Practice Management mm-hmm. that they host. So, so just like there's the hosting companies that have a niche in the QuickBooks world, QuickBooks desktop hosting, there's obviously... Uh, hosting companies that have carved out a niche in other industries. And so, but again, here it's another hosting company that's yep. getting ransomware and then it affects and it spreads to all their clients, which still, I still don't understand how this happens because the whole point of this, of using a hosting company is you're outsourcing your IT department. It's it's all about the structure of how that hosting company is, is set, set up. up. If they don't have like firewalls in between all of the different servers, then one server gets infected, the other ones get infected. Like that's why shared hosting is a horrible idea. Because 
you know, even if you are exercising precaution on your own um, virtual server in that shared hosting environment, if somebody else gets infected, the whole thing can snowball. And get, yeah. yeah. The thing is like this whole government hack makes me think that basically if somebody is powerful and wealthy enough, like a state, for instance, and wants to hack you, they're going to be able to hack you. There is no way that you can secure a hosting environment against uh, somebody who's motivated enough. Like it's just a lost cause. So you have to just hope that you're not a target. I mean, it's a great argument to switch as much as possible to using SaaS because yes, SaaS companies can be hacked too, but it's just not the same as a environment in which you're relying on, you know, old technology like, you know, Windows PCs. So Yeah, and and then I think you think about a SaaS company like a QuickBooks or Zero, there's kind of just like one front door that a whole team of people at QuickBooks or at Zero is trying to protect that one front door in right. a way, right? Yeah. And then you think about if you're a firm and now you have hundreds of virtual machines, thousands of virtual machines, each one of those machines is a is a front door. Yep. And that's just harder to secure. And yep. Yeah. It's, yeah. That's a great analogy for it, right? It's, it's having one door or a few doors versus having hundreds of doors that and, you can't secure hundreds of doors. But it is disappointing that you say, like, basically, like, you pretty much, if somebody wants to hack, there's not, you can't stop it, which is a right. little scary. But let's acknowledge that reality and then just make sure that we, anything that you really uh, don't want to become public, just don't put it in an email. <laughs> anything that you, really want to secure and keep offline. Like if you've got cryptocurrency tokens or, or keys or whatever, do not have that on a network where somebody could access it. Like keep that offline on paper if you need to in a lockbox somewhere. Uh, so we were talking about uh, hacking. Maybe we can turn to fraud, right? Malicious yes. actors and stuff like that. So we have some follow-up from the fraud stories that we talked about earlier this year. Luckin Coffee has settled with the Securities and Exchange Commission for a whopping $180 million. The SEC sued Luckin, saying that from April 2019 through January 2020, Luckin made up more than $300 million in fake retail sales, and that some of the company's employees tried to conceal the fraud by inflating its expenses by more than $190 million, creating a fake operations database and altering accounting and bank records. Now, on to Wirecard. The other big story. So of the before year. we jump off of Luckin yeah. Coffee for a second, Eric, because I think a couple of weeks ago they were all talking about that. You know, there's been this push to not let these Chinese companies like this go public on our exchanges. Yeah, yeah. So, right. and that there was actually um, news on that front. That bill passed and is over to the president for signature. We are, unless that changes, going to force Chinese companies to allow the SEC to inspect their audits. And if they don't agree to do that within like three years, we're going to kick them off our exchanges. So they're going to, you know, the SEC find them. You know, I assume the uh, PCAOB is going to look into them and possibly find them as well. Like every, every little government agency here in the US is just going to get their piece of them and then they'll let them go public on their market. It's like kind of, that's why it kind of, that's why it feels like a shakedown. Well, which is the opposite that happens to our companies, right? When when a US company tries to do something in China, they have to agree to like give up IP and all this other type of stuff. It, it, it's almost like tit for tat here. Yeah, maybe. That, that, you think of it that way. I mean, I think of it as just holding them to the same standard that we hold US companies. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Wirecard. That's the other big story of the year. That German uh, fintech that turned out to be faking a ton of revenue and then went bankrupt. I mean, billions of dollars. Isn't of, the uh, the former CFO still on the lam? 
like FBI I, most wanted still. I think he went and fled to Russia, right? He's hiding out in Russia. They can't yeah. get him. Yeah. So the story here is that the audit regulator that was supposed to be auditing Wirecard wasn't doing its job. And we got a hint of that with some news that came out about Ralph Bose, the head of the accounting regulator, APAS. He testified at a parliamentary hearing that he bought Wirecard stock at the end of April and sold it on May 20th at a loss. That was during the time that APAS had upgraded its review of Ernst & Young's audits for Wirecard to a fully-fledged probe. So imagine if the head of the SEC was buying stock, trading stock in a company that was under SEC investigation. I don't know. It's 2020. Are we still shocked by any of this? <laughs> I got one last fraud story before we move on because this is one that's been sitting here in my queue for a while. Oh, yeah? Uh, this is about a Microsoft engineer who's got nine years in jail for stealing $10 million from Microsoft. And the way he did it is interesting. This guy is from Ukraine and he was working on Microsoft's online store and his job was to test the store and make sure it worked properly. He was doing quality assurance, David. You're okay. you know, very familiar with this yeah. job. So his job was to test the store by placing mock orders. And what he realized is that while the store testing environment prevented the shipment of real products, he had no problem purchasing virtual products such as gift cards. So he would place orders for virtual gift cards as part of his testing and then take those codes and resell those for cash. And he did that over a period of two years to steal millions of dollars before anyone noticed it. He would resell them for Bitcoin and then he cashed that out using Coinbase. Uh, but, you know, those systems like Coinbase, you know, you can trace back and they could figure out who was doing the testing. And so they eventually caught him. Kind of a interesting. I'm surprised that it, it took that long, like where somewhere somebody's reconciliation didn't match. Right. Well, like, <laughs> two years. Maybe maybe materiality is like $10 million for Microsoft. I don't know. They make a lot of money. Just right? it, yeah, they, they, can, they have other problems. Can you imagine like being the staff accountant who's doing that reconciliation and be like, gosh, I'm I'm off by a few million bucks. You know, I'll just I'll plug it this month. <laughs> and then it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> uh, trying to get through it. Yeah. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by OnPay. OnPay is an easy-to-use, full-service payroll and HR software that is the right fit for all your clients, whether they have just one or 500 employees to stay organized, save time, and get compliant. OnPay includes the best-in-class integrations to benefit providers, workers' comp plans, QuickBooks, and Xero. They also handle all the complicated stuff that other payroll providers don't, like agricultural payrolls, including Form 943, multi-state payrolls, and employees with H-2A visas. With OnPay's newly released report designer, you can use enterprise-level data and over 50 data points to create multiple report views for all your client stakeholders, be it the C-suite, departments, or HR. Right now, Cloud Accounting Podcast listeners can get three free months of top-rated OnPay payroll and HR service. To learn more, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash onpay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O-N-P-A-Y. OnPay, nobody takes better care of your clients. So I know we have to do app news, but I did see an article that kind of is app news, but not app news. But we've, we've griped about this a little bit like Slack, right? Like we question Slack a little bit. A little bit. I question it a lot. I freaking hate Slack. I mean, I hate email, but I also hate Slack. Like, I don't like either of them. So, I think that's a great transition. Let's let's make Slack the start of our app news start, segment. Yeah. And so, just I want to vent on Slack before we talk about the 
<laughs> this story. Yeah, one thing I hate about Slack is I, I'm connected to work. I'm connected to accounting salon. I have my own Slack channel, blah, 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 blah. And then we have a cloud accounting podcast Slack channel for you and I. Yeah. So I have to get in there on a Saturday morning just so you and I can get ready for the podcast. A couple messages here and there. But the problem is if I click on Slack, guess what's in my face? All Big the red from work. <laughs> I have you know, 59 messages, eight messages, three messages. And it's just all the alerts are there. Like I, I just, I'm, I actually was thinking about it when I opened it up today. I was like, Blake and I just need our own like communication channel that is just private for us that there's no other, <laughs> like, I, I don't want to see other messages, right? When I just want to yeah. send a message yeah, to Blake yeah. and it's just up in my face. So anyways, so browsing around this week, I did see an article. So the t- this is the New Yorker uh, title is Slack is the right tool for the wrong way to work. And it just reminded me of you. I'm so excited that you brought this because I really feel that way. And I'm, I'm really eager to hear like what, what is wrong with Slack? Because I'm having trouble, I'm having trouble like vocalizing that or expressing it. Like I, I don't like it. It's not even necessarily better than email. Like there's many cases in which I prefer to send an email, which to me indicates there's a problem with Slack. So like, what is, what is the gist of this? I mean, the gist of his article and he kind of ties it back to the, uh, the industrial revolution a little bit. Right. And this is the New Yorker. So, of course, this, they're going to go back to something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, and so it, he rambles and it goes on and on and on and on. But kind of the gist of it is, you know, back in the day, like factories were trying to figure out how to make that water wheel just turn a little bit faster. So, they were just making teeny little incremental improvements mm-hmm. versus here comes a steam engine and just changed everything. Right. His argument is basically Slack is just one of these teeny short-term optimizations. An incremental improvement from email, but not actually fixing the underlying problem. Right. And so, you know, he goes on to say, and, and really this is like a New York, typical New Yorker article, you have to read the whole thing because the only thing really good is the last sentence of the article. <laughs> so I'll just read the last sentence of the article and then we can comment from there. Okay. The future of office work won't be found in continuing to reduce the friction involved in messaging, but instead in figuring out how to avoid the need to send so many messages in the first place. Uh, nailed it. Should put that right at the top, you know, TLDR. <laughs> that's, that's what, you know, that's what, he, yeah, I agree because, well, what you're experiencing when you open Slack and you see 56 messages is this like complete overwhelm, like too much communication, like distill this down for me. And it's the same thing. If you only have email, it's the same situation where you open up your email inbox and you got like 200 messages and you don't know what's important and what's not. And if you think about being in office in the person Right. So if you and I are standing there having a conversation about something, even if it's a hallway meeting, mm-hmm. 45 other people in the company can't just also jump into my, just say, David, 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 they're going to have to wait their turn. Right. And it's just, it's a fundamental flaw of instant, in a way, it's not just Slack. I mean, I get messages coming in on LinkedIn messages and Twitter and you have your emails and you got your text messages. It just, it just all keeps coming in. And Maybe there is an advantage of going person to person. Like this can't happen person to person. Yeah. If you get rid of all this messaging platforms, but you're right. Like what's the need to have all these messages? Yeah. My big problem with Slack is that it, it really pressures users to have synchronous communication when you don't need it. Like you feel like you have to constantly be monitoring it or you're going to miss out on the important conversation of the day. It's like, it's almost like if, if it was an office feeling like you have to walk around all the time so that you can see all the conversations going on so you're not missing anything and you never actually get to sit down at your desk and do any work. That's that's what it feels like. And it's not yeah. like Twitter where you're like, oh, I can miss some of this. It's not a big deal. Right, because it's your work. If I'm hearing you, you're saying, hey, just close Slack, open it once or twice a day when you need to check it. But then it's like, 
if I'm you treating it like email at that point, why don't we just not use it and just everybody use email? Yeah. Well, and then if you're only looking at Slack every now and then, it's just, it's worse because there's even more messages and it's really hard to tell what's threaded, right? Like at least in email, you have threads <laughs> these days. Whereas with Slack, people don't know how to properly use threads. And so it just everything's like one big jumble in a channel. So it's even harder to figure out what's going on. Well, so I told Slack yeah, they need yeah. to do drag and drop. So if somebody posts like a message and it should be in the thread, you just move it and it get it in the thread because people just an accident. If you just type fast, yeah. next you know it's not in the thread, which is actually a fundamental flaw of Slack because it's too easy to not post a reply in a thread. Like it should just be smarter, or it should detect what you're. you're it should be checked the context that you're typing. We have all this AI for all this stuff to service ads and all this other stupid crap. Yeah. Like if I start typing a sentence, you're like, Hey, are you sure? It feels like this is part of this thread and they move it in the thread. Like that, you know, I didn't, we need real AI that actually accomplishes. That actually helps us. Yes. Helps us work so, better. So anyways, just, that, that, yeah. that, that link will be in there. It's uh, you know, I, I just saw the headline and I was like, yep, this is a uh, Reddit Blake's alley. Well, let's continue on with app news. My big story this week is about Robin hood the app that helps anybody learn how to trade stocks and even options. Massachusetts regulators have filed a complaint against Robinhood. Apparently, Massachusetts passed a rule this year that broker-dealers have to act as fiduciaries for their customers. And so the Massachusetts regulators are saying that Robinhood failed to do this. And some of the arguments are, are kind of funny, The complaint alleges that through the promise of free stocks, push notifications, and its signature digital confetti, Robinhood encourages, quote, continuous and repeated engagement with its application, unquote. State regulators allege that Robinhood allowed one customer with no investment experience to make more than 12,700 trades in just over six months. By encouraging inexperienced investors to continuously execute trades, Robinhood prioritized its revenue over the best interest of its customers, the complaint says. Uh, That's according to a Wall Street Journal story. So basically, Massachusetts seems to be complaining that Robinhood made investing too easy (laughs) and too much fun. And there's a separate interview with William Galvin, the Secretary of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And he said that the platform is, quote, not presented as serious investing with substantial risk. It's presented as a sort of game that you might be able to win, unquote. Oh, but absolutely. I mean- <laughs> they, 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 it has the same principles that are that's in Angry Birds, right? You, you, you finish the level, you get that little, the, right, that little right. juice of an endorphin, then you want to do the next level. And, and, and I mean, Angry Birds is like the easy example because we were one of the first ones that really kind of developed that model. Then all games started doing it. And not, not only all games started doing it, all the big media companies like Facebook and Twitter and everybody else started doing it. But now it's getting into stock apps. And what's next? Is it going to be like in QuickBooks? Like, hey, which actually maybe that would be great, right? Like, hey, you audit, you typed in your 10 bills faster than you did last time and you get a little badge or something, right? To you know, motivate faster data entry. I don't yeah. know. But, but this gamification makes it very addictive because you get you get that little endorphin rush. Yeah, absolutely. But and and so like I'm conflicted about Robinhood because I think what they're doing is good. They're making investing accessible with making it free and and making it easy to do. Like it's getting people involved in the stock market and we want most of our citizens to be invested in the economy because you know that's what makes them responsible people who pay attention to what's going on in the government and and all this stuff. Um so like I I I don't know. It's just, it's funny to me. It's like he sounds like a boomer, you know, like complaining about, you know, I used to have to call up my broker and make a trade on the phone. And, you know, like now you can just do it with an app, you know, that kind of 
that thing. And it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. what's wrong with that? You know, I mean, there's obviously a lot that's wrong with Robin hood. So it's, it's kind of um, a mixed bag. Like they just paid $65 million to settle an sec probe about how they didn't disclose their business deals with high speed trading firms. So they weren't giving their customers, you know, the best uh, rates on their trades and stuff like that. But big picture, they've done a lot. They're one of the most influential fintechs in the country, possibly the world right now. Um, there's some data here on like fintech is really, really penetrating and has grown a ton in the pandemic. McKinsey has a story out called how U.S. customers' attitudes to fintech are shifting during the pandemic with a bunch of survey data. Did you know that 42% of U.S. financial decision makers now have a fintech account? 6% of those were added since the start of the pandemic. Almost a quarter of financial decision makers in this country use a fintech banking platform. And investment and lending platforms like Robinhood grew by 23% and 25% respectively during the pandemic. 66% of Gen Zers have a fintech account. 56% for millennials. So over half of those generations have fintech accounts. Gen ZX is not far behind at 44%. But you guess, guess who doesn't? have fintech accounts. Boomers, only a quarter of them have any fintech accounts on their phones. I believe that. I don't think I could pay my parents in PayPal, Venmo. I don't think they have any of those types of apps. Like, I, um, And I, you probably have access to Zelle maybe through their bank, but I don't even know how to explain to them how to... Can, I'm not even going down that path, right? I'll just be like, I'll pay you $20 cash when I see you next time. Uh, so that's my big, you know tech app news story. I didn't see any big updates from the accounting or uh, payment apps this week. What, how about you? Go Cardless uh, just raised uh, $95 million in their Series F. So Go Cardless is based in London and they really specialize in kind of automating recurring payments. Like, And so they're very popular in in the UK with accountants and bookkeepers because you set your, your accountants up on Go Cardless and you just debit every month, your monthly fee, right? From your clients. Mm -hmm. And so they really were uh, started out as being a service for that. But obviously with this next raise and the massive amount they've they've raised, they, you know, they plan on coming to the US, they are going e-commerce, like they're heading down other paths besides just this kind of subscription B2B payment, subscription e-commerce type stuff. Gotcha. So they, they took a huge raise on that. Uh, I saw that. I saw this was a little, little funny, I guess. Um, not funny, but uh, Patriot Software, so Patriot Payroll, they now have an integration with T-Sheets. And the reason I thought this was funny because five years ago, maybe, uh, at a, a conference, I made the introduction between T-Sheets and Patriot. And at that time, T-Sheets founder uh, Matt Rizzo was like, because Patriot also had their own timesheet app, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. And Matt Rizzo, who was at T-Sheets at the time, was like, you will never integrate with us now. <laughs> There's a big press release about how Patriot software now integrates with T-Sheets. So it's kind of a – I thought that was a little entertaining. Yeah. You know, hey, if if you are talking with David Leary and you work at an app and you're at a conference and he says, hey, you should consider doing this with your app. like It's probably going to happen it, eventually. It probably will happen eventually, even if you don't do it. So you might want to follow his advice. I'm just telling you that. He like he kind of knows what he's talking about when it comes to the ecosystem. <laughs> well, and, and then there's another raise, um, Ramp. So Ramp is a, another corporate spend card similar to the Divis and the Brexes and Expensified. So it's another startup. I mean, there, I, I, just, I click on these. I click like when I see these ads on Facebook. So I get more ads for these companies. So this is another one that's, that's uh, bounced around here. But they just took $30 million, which I find interesting. Like our investors, because we know that um, Expensify, Dave Barrett, mid middle of COVID, sent out that email about how 
how down travel is, right? Mm-hmm. And how down their business was. And so our investors are really assuming like travel is going to come back full steam again post pandemic. And there's going to be business travel and lots of business expenses and people swiping those business credit cards everywhere. So, it, so, so what app is this? This is an app called Ramp. And their expense management? Yeah, but it's it's kind of in that new newfangled. Like I think it might be free, mm. and it's 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 spin up instant virtual cards. It's very similar to the Brex Divi, you know, type. And now obviously, um, Expensify is kind of into that a little bit more. It's it's not truly a bank, but at the same time, it's not. Gotcha. Um, so I have a theory about this. My theory is that the expense management apps have actually not been hurt as much as you might think by the downturn in travel and entertainment, because with everyone working at home. They're not going around and walking over to the controller or the VP of finance and saying, hey, can I have the credit card? I need to put something on the credit card. And then, you know, being able to take it back to their desk and, you know, put in the charge or something like that. So these cards, these virtual cards, these expense management tools are being used to help people pay for stuff when they're working remotely. So the whole, the ability to spin up a virtual credit card for your employee and hey, now they have a virtual credit card, they quickly use it and then it vanishes when they're done basically. Yeah. But, but that, that's a new need that has arisen because of remote. Yeah. And and the, it's just that the expenses have changed, right? Like expense reports still exist. Maybe you have fewer charges, but now it's stuff like my home internet maybe that I'm getting reimbursed for, or, you know, it's that thing that I had to buy for my home office that you're allowing me to get reimbursed for. Like we, we, we had a stat in one of our recent episodes about how the majority of employers are reimbursing for at least something in the home office. So how do you do that? Right? You're doing it through an expense app or you're doing it through one of these solutions, these virtual cards. They're probably doing actually okay. And I'm sure that from a growth perspective, you know, they're they're nothing but upside, right? If you're start, yeah. if you're a new if you're a, well, a yeah. new startup, right? And you, you happen to be a virtual solution for virtual cards, they're probably all, all these players are probably all growing equally right now. And so if you're brand new, your growth looks insane. Yeah. And then look at what's going to happen when the economy does come back, when coronavirus goes away and people are traveling again, like there's just going to be even more need. So, yeah. Um, I got one last set of stories here for apps. Um, You know, it's the end of 2020. Maybe you're thinking about new tech for 2021. These few weeks at the end of December are always good downtime to think about your technology and try out new things. I really love the Zapier blog. They do a great job of highlighting apps that integrate with Zapier. And it's always good to try apps that integrate with Zapier because if it does, you know that you're going to be able to connect your data, at least in some respect, as opposed to something that doesn't integrate with anything. Zapier has some roundup articles on the best apps to consider for 2021. So they've got the five best note-taking apps of 2021, the eight best free email marketing apps of 2021, and the best free CRM software of 2021. All of these links will be in the show notes, or you can just search for them on the Zapier blog. Yeah, what are the note, the note apps that actually I find very interesting? So the five note-taking apps are Evernote, no surprise there, Microsoft OneNote, also not a surprise, Apple Notes, Google Keep, and Notion, which they highlight for collaboration as the best collaboration app. So depending on the size of your firm and your needs, you know, you're know you probably going to use one of those four up top, or you're going to look at Notion, which is better for teams. And I, I've actually tried Notion myself. I, I would highly recommend people look at that. What's great about these articles uh, is they're all apps that have a free version, which 
I really like because that way you can test it out. You can use it for a little while. There's no pressure to upgrade after you know a short time period. And that's important for note-taking apps, for email marketing, for CRM software, because you really need to try that stuff for potentially a few months before you know if it's a good fit for you. So this way you can kind of try them all out, even simultaneously, and just see what feels right. Uh, before you upgrade if you need more features. But they all have a version that will work for certain use cases for free forever. That's good. I mean, I'm still on Evernote. I do the paid Evernote. Um, it, I use it I use it in a very scattered way. I tend to use generic Microsoft, the, the generic notepad that's just in Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And I'll open that and use that all day. But then if you know you reboot your computer and you don't save the doc, it's just gone forever. So anytime I, though I need to take a note that I'm like, oh, I'm, I kind of want to keep this, I'll open up Evernote and do it. Um, but I think I'm an Evernote because it was free and it was kind of first to market. Right. Yep. And then you, once you have X amount of data in there, I don't have to like figure out how to move thousands, 10 years, a decade of notes somewhere, even though I'm sure I probably could just move tomorrow and not miss anything that's in Evernote. But well, I'll tell you, David, unfortunately, as somebody who did migrate from Evernote, it's a huge pain in the butt. They don't make it easy. Uh, I mean, you can export all your notes as like PDFs and stuff, but then, you know, how do you like put that into a new app? It's not, it's not easy to do. I, gave up Evernote. I'm using OneNote now for all my personal stuff that I don't need to share with people. And then I use Apple Notes to share notes with my wife because we're on you know the Apple ecosystem. It's like if we need to share something, we'll do it there. Uh, but if I were sharing notes with like my team, then I would use a collaboration app like, like Notion. Google Keep, I think, is just actually a pretty terrible note-taking app. Like unless all you're looking to do is share like short snippets of text, or, or save short t- snippets of text that you can search. It's not good for organizing. The way OneNote and Evernote are, where you can have notebooks and you can get really detailed with your organizing, Google keeps like, let's just dump it all somewhere and <laughs> look for it later, which is kind of the Google mentality. Uh, makes sense there. So, I saw interesting, uh, just the last piece of app news from Sage here. So, Sage is launching their partner cloud program to accelerate cloud migration. And it's great headline i'm like oh finally like sage is really starting to push people to the cloud and then essentially what this is is it's going to help their partners deploy sage 300 which is their desktop erp on the microsoft azure cloud oh i see (laughs) but but what's interesting about this because this is their bigger sage 300 is their slightly bigger mid-size erp solution correct and my, my question i guess here would be for sage is like why are you not just pushing these people towards sage intact like, like it's, it's it, this constant in, in Intuit used to do this, I think, with QuickBooks. I think they're very clear now into it's It's very hard to get QuickBooks, right? Desktop, right. they're very clearly pushing QuickBooks online. But I think with Sage, with all their business units and all their different accounting systems, I don't think they still have yet to get on the same page of like, what is the strategy at Sage? Well, it's the same problem that, like you said, at, at Intuit, where you have these legacy on-prem solutions that have stuff that Intech doesn't have and won't have for a long time. So you so, think it's, it's a feature set that's just going to keep these people, they just got to keep using the old Sage 300 because they have features that exist in there that don't yeah, exist yeah. yet in Sage Intech. Yeah, like okay. the on-prem ones tend to be more robust for manufacturing the same way that QuickBooks Desktop is. And because the online stuff developed for professional services and not for profits first. And yeah, it's it's the same exact problem. But then there's also just the issue of, you know, you have these different business divisions and people have their castles and they, you know, you can't take that away from a VP <laughs> or they're going to, they're going to leave, you know? And I don't envy Sage at all on this. Like, cause like, I know it was, it's just hard enough for them too. And they only have two products. You have QuickBooks Desktop, QuickBooks Online, but Sage has like nine products and they have Sage Intact and they have their uh, Sage Business Cloud, which is like their, their, 
entry level business cloud product. And then they, I don't even know, it's stage one around. That was the one they built on Salesforce. Is that gone already now? Yeah, I think they gave up on that. But they just have a lot of legacy to deal with. And it's, uh, and not only that, that's just US. Canada markets, right? Think about the rest of the world where they have oh, yeah. accounting packages and other markets. It's a uh, don't envy their uh, what's on their plate for sure. David, that's all the time we got for this week. Did we get any reviews? We did get one review. This is from uh, JP Lizdorf on Apple Podcasts. It's five stars, and uh, it's it's a question. Is the title of his review? He said, "How did I get by before I had the cloud accounting podcast?" Wow, man! Wow, I honestly can't believe. What a cool podcast this is. You elegantly mix accounting news with what's going on in the business world right now. And for any accountant that wants to have a chance in the future, adding business acumen to the debits and credits is a necessity. The accountants that are going to survive in the future will be listening to your podcast. That's a great review. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. And if our listeners want to go and write a review to help us out, where can they do that, David? If you're an Apple person, you can do it on Apple Podcasts. I think you can do it right inside the Apple Podcast app on your phone. And if you're not an Apple person, you you know, you you love free market. Um, <laughs> you can use you can use Podchaser. It's podchaser.com. Just find the Cloud Accounting Podcast. You can leave a review there. And those reviews actually show up in other apps now on the, that are on the market. That's great. And and I cannot emphasize how important these reviews are the quantity and recency of reviews is how many of these apps decide what to show potential listeners. So when you write a review, you are actually helping our podcast surface to other accountants and bookkeepers who will hopefully fall in love with the show as well, grow the listener base. And that allows us to you know, do more for you guys, right? bring you more information. It, you know, every time we get new listeners, it makes me want to read more news and find better stories for you guys. Yeah. I saw that Christmas day four time four X. I think it's four X as many cell phones get activated on Christmas day than any other day of the year. So if you're helping somebody like set up their new cell phone, feel free to just subscribe to the cloud accounting podcast while you're doing that. It would be really helpful. You can also leave us a voicemail. You can give us a call at 202-695-1040. That goes straight to voicemail. It gives you about two minutes to leave a message. Tell us what you think. Tell us about a story. Give us some feedback. We got some great feedback about PPP from our listeners, from uh, Mel Comer in particular. Thank you, Mel. And we would love to hear from the rest of you on, on what you are thinking. What is top of mind for you? Uh, we will listen to that and we might even play it on the air. And don't forget about the bonus episode that's going to drop right after this. Yeah, go listen to Justin Alangian talk about the changes in the PPP program that are coming most likely with this new stimulus bill. David, until next time, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? The easiest way is on all the socials. I'm just at David Leary. If you're using LinkedIn, be sure to say I'm not a bot. So I know you're not a spammer. I am at Blake T. Oliver. Connect with me on Twitter or LinkedIn. David, great chatting with you as always. Until next week, stay safe and sane. And next week will be our last of 2020. Wow. So we're going to have to do like a wrap-up episode or a predictions episode. We got to think about this. Yes. How how are we going to handle this with the holidays? <laughs> and actually, we probably need to figure out when we're going to record because holidays on the Friday. Do we do do we wake up the day after Christmas and record? <laughs> I, I mean, you know, we're hardcore, David. We haven't missed a single week this year. Actually, we haven't. Have we ever even missed a single week since we started doing this? Two hundred. No. Something we, at one time, you wanted to like sleep in and skip, and I said, Blake, if we skip, it's over. We'll just skip every week. We'll just. So we don't, we just get up and do the show. There's an alternate universe in which we did skip and there was no more cloud accounting podcast. So thank you, David, for keeping me going. Chat with you uh, 
I guess, uh, at the end of the year. I guess after Christmas. Enjoy your holidays. Bye. See you then. Time for the classifieds. I want to tell you about a new workflow solution called Bacotech. Bacotech is a cloud solution that puts CPAs in the middle of their clients' data. Bacotech gathers clients' data and delivers it to CPAs in real time through one login, enabling CPAs to make adjustments to tax returns and client accounting issues as they happen, not at for year end. Bacotech helps CPAs provide their clients with the proactive services they need and increases the firm's efficiency and leads to working less overtime and busy season. To learn more about Bacotech, head over to bacotech.com. Looking to radically increase productivity as a cloud accountant? Introducing Client Hub's Frictionless Workflow, a unique combination of internal workflow seamlessly blended with client tasks and communications. See how a frictionless experience across your team and your clients will save you hours of time. Get started today with a free trial at clienthub.app. Enter promo code CAP25 for 25% off your first three months. Client Hub, truly frictionless workflow. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info, and be sure to check out our special stimulus pricing of four episodes for just $100.